Hi, welcome to Exploring the Illusion of Free Will. My name is George Ortega, and it's September 26, 2014. This is episode number 171, Free Will, Its Refutation, Societal Cost, and Role in Climate Change Denial. And that's the title of this book that I published um, in April of 2014, you know, several months ago. And actually, this is part eight of this series, okay? We're just, we're just covering this book page by page. Okay, and um, right now we're critiquing an article. We're on page, the bottom of page 16. We're critiquing an article uh, by a philosopher from the University of Florida, Al Mealy, who wrote a, a paper, an article in a peer-reviewed journal in 2012 titled Another Scientific Threat to Free Will? It's in the Monist Journal. And so anyways, he's like... His, the claim that he makes, you know, that I'm addressing um, here is like, he says, he's, he's, he's apparently claiming that intentions have some kind of like unique property among thoughts, con- contentions, or cognitions, just like that intentions have some unique quality about them that somehow exempt, exempts them from the law of cause and effect. Because I think, you know, he doesn't really be like, you know, He's trying to like this is kind of like with with this with this reliance on intentions. He's kind of like conceding. Well, you know, you know, thoughts are thoughts um, are subject to causality, and you know, in, in previous episodes I've explained why causality makes free will impossible. But um, but basically, with this, he's saying that intentions are different, and an intention. Is a thought okay? I mean, like that's that's, that's the basic. Um, what I say here is like intentions, however, do not possess a unique characteristic that exempts them from causality. You know, it's a thought. You know, a thought, any kind of cognition, any kind of feeling, any kind of physiological activity, psychological activity, neurological activity, anything that happens in our bodies in our minds is going to have a cause. All right. So there's no whether it's intentions, whatever you want to call whatever kind of like, you know, cognition you want to refer to, it's got to have a cause, all right? And that's what refutes free will. All right, so now he again like demonstrates his like, you know, ignorance of of like physics, of, of like, you know, the laws of nature. So like on top of page 17, he says that, quote, whereas the laws of nature that apply to deterministic causation are exceptionless, those that apply most directly to indeterministic causation are instead probabilistic. All right. He's misunderstanding, failing to understand quantum mechanics. In, quantum, in, in classical Newtonian mechanics, you can predict particle behavior by simultaneously measuring the particle's position and behavior. In quantum mechanics, you know, with subatomic particles, you can't do that for reasons I've explained in the past. But um, basically, he's, he's kind of like suggesting that our free will resides in, in the uh, quantum level. But and then like he's re- he's 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 resorting to probability, which 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 shows why he doesn't understand quantum mechanics. Now, basically. Because we can't simultaneously measure a single particle's position and momentum at the quantum level, what we do to arrive at incredibly accurate predictions, 
we first, through classical means, through Newtonian means, we measure the simultaneous position and momentum of groups of particles, because that we can do. You know, that we can do even at the quantum level, okay? So we've got these measurements, and we'll measure these groups countless times, you know, many, many times. And that data set forms the basis of then deriving the probabilities that allow us to predict quantum particle behavior. You know, Mealy and, and other people very curiously, very wrongly believe that these particles are behaving probabilistically, not understanding that probability refers only to our way, our method of predicting their behavior. Nothing behaves probabilistically. If I flip a coin in the air, okay, it's 50-50 probability that's going to land heads or tails, right? That in no way <laughs> asserts or, or suggests that that coin is behaving probabilistically, okay? The probability refers to the method of prediction. Okay, so I think I, I, think I explained that. All right. <laughs> um, and the other thing is like, Indeterministic causation. I mean, indeterminism has various uses. And like his, his, this sentence, whereas the laws of nature that apply to indeterministic causation are exceptionless, those that apply most directly to indeterministic causation are instead of... It is like, it is so fraught with confusion because these terms have various meanings. He, did, he, did, he doesn't clarify. Um, indeterminism can sometimes mean that something is uncaused, but if something is uncaused you can't attribute to a human being. So, like, if you're trying to, like, suggest that indeterminism or, or refuting causality will, will render free will, no. It, it's like, you know, if, if, if our decisions are being uncaused or they're being indeterminate, we're not causing them, okay? Anyway, so, um, so basically, yeah, again, to, to refute his, his claim, his above claim, his mistake here is in confusing the mechanics used to predict quantum behavior with the governance of particles by the principle of causality. Okay. He next posits that, quote, Moe's decision to help a stranded motorist is indeterministically caused by, among other things, is thinking that he should help. I mean, like, I'm just like, I'm going to just bypass this whole thing of indeterministically caused, all right? Like, you know, basically he's, it's caused, all right? And like, I think what he's referring to, and it's hard to understand because, like, I don't think he understands this. So, like, I think by indeterministically, he means, like, this causality can't be predicted by, quant by classical, you know, mechanics. That's, that's the only thing I can think of. But anyway, he's, he's at least conceding that this decision to help a stranded motorist is caused, okay, by mother th another thing is thinking that he should help. All right, but fine. <laughs> you know, so like, all right, basically, if it's caused by his desire, you know, to think that it should help, again, he's introduced causality. That means there would be a cause for his thinking that, that he should help. And there would be a cause for, for that cause and a cause for that cause. That's not really the... Um, the um, the proof, though, the, the refutation of his claim that I use here, because basically he's basically um, he's um, referring to the probability still. So my my response is that um, okay, uh, where is it? All right. While while one might, if it could ever be done, use quantum probabilities to predict that decision, 
It would not be the probabilistic mechanics of the prediction, but rather the decision's causal nature that would prohibit the decision from being free will. All right, so I just basically said, in other words, what I just explained. That basically, like, his, his thinking that he should help has a cause, you know, and it caused him to help. And so he's introduced causality, and when you introduce causality, you're free free will. Okay, middle of page 17. All right, he next suggests, quote, in agent causation, an agent is connection by the relation causation to an action or intention that the, and that connection is not reducible to a connection between states or events and the action or intention. The guy, he doesn't understand what he's writing because if he did, he wouldn't write what, what he just wrote. Basically, you know, with, without the, the kind of like the obfuscative, you know, sophist, um, you know, language he uses, basically what he's saying that, um, that when we make a decision, that can't be explained by, by antecedent, by states or events and the action. He's saying there's no connection. <laughs> um, Okay, I, I, I'm tired because, like, I, you know, I did a show um, in Manhattan on Wednesday. This is, like, Friday, and, like, I didn't get home until 2, and then, like, yesterday I was super busy. So, like, my mind isn't working as well as it might, but, so, like, I'm going to, like, instead of explaining how absurd this statement is, I'm going to read, you know, what I read, you know, what I wrote in the book to, to refute it, okay? So, basically, bottom 17, my answer to, to Mealy's absurd contention is... Um, He's claiming that while a person may cause an action, causality does not explain the action the person caused. There are two ways to refute this claim. The first is to categorically reject the idea that a person can cause an action or event in a way that is unexplained by prior states of the universe. Okay, the second is to note that the idea of a person causing an action acausally is incoherent. You know, he's, he's implying that, you know, um, that because um, like, it's hard to know what he means by indeterminism because he's using it like without understanding. But if he's using it to, to mean that, that an action can be caused and both and uncaused at the same time, no. That's just logically, physically, conceptually impossible. Okay. So and, and the last so I'm, I'm so we're we're finally finished with with the um this is great we're finally finished with the um the refutations of the, these philosophers nonsensical absurd and you got to wonder how they you know how they get their PhDs first of all because like you know understanding causality and its implications is not difficult you know you know you could teach this to a to a junior high school maybe even an elementary person so anyway like but anyway so we've gotten through these these um these four articles, you know, trying to defend free will in really, really absurd ways. I mean, let's, you know, I'm, I'm glad I wrote this book, you know, with this chapter because it just shows so clearly how nonsensical, how absurd these free will defenses are. Um, so let me, before I go on to the next chapter on page 19, which is, uh, that should be a good chapter, I just want to, like, uh, finish off with my last statement on, on page 18. All right, so Mealy's claim that intentional actions can arise without 
their having been caused combines the notion that intentions are exempt from causality with the idea that an uncaused intention can be attributed to a human and also lacks coherence. In other words, like he's just like what he's writing is just nonsensical. It just you know, it, it's self-contradictory. It's contradicted by reason. It's contradictory, contradicted by physics and science. All right, we are on page nineteen, and um, it's the beginning of the chapter. Implications of free will belief and disbelief. Okay. Now here's the thing, like over the in nineteen eighty-two, I'm 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 just gonna explain this. It's not in the book so much, but you know, I I just refer to it briefly. But in nineteen eighty-three, I believe, um this researcher Labette, LeBay, you know, with with associates Gleason, Wright, and Pearl, they did a study. And it's an interesting study. We should get into this. Um, they asked a person to like either click their, move their finger or their wrist, you know, at certain times, you know, and then like to, then they had a clock on the wall with a very fast hand, much faster than the, you know, the hands of an ordinary clock. And it had numbers, you know, like a regular clock. And then it asked the person to, Note on the clock the exact moment they made their decision. They were aware of their decision to move their finger or their wrist, right? So, so like they had the um, these subjects hooked up to two imaging machines. The first is an electroencephalogram that measures um, electrical activity, and so like that was like hooked up to their scalp you know, measuring their, their, their brain activity. The second was an electromyogram that muscles, um, measures muscle activity. Okay, now, something that they discovered previously regarding muscle activity is like, there is a, a thing called, do I get into it here? It's kind of like a point of no return. I, I'm, I'm not sure I remember the exact term. The, the, um, the what is it? Um, it's, it's a point after which, you know, a must, uh, an action has been initiated and there's no way that it can be stopped. It's kind of like, I forget what it is. Anyway, so like, so basically they, um, what they determined in this, in this, these experiments, these series of experiments that have actually been replicated and strengthened vastly was that the, um, before the person was aware of their decision to flick their, their finger or their wrist, you know, based on the report you know, on where the clock was. Motor activity, muscle movement, you know, motor activity for the, the ready, readiness potential. <laughs> Sorry, the readiness potential is like this mechanism where like, you know, it's like activity that, that tells you that uh, an act, uh, a motor activity is, you know, unquestionably going to happen. So anyway, these researchers detected this readiness potential for the muscle activity in this experiment several hundred milliseconds before the person was um, aware of their decision to, to move. Okay, now you might say several hundred milliseconds, you know, it might be like a technological error or whatever, but all right, in 2008, I get into this um, Later, I mean, actually, I think I get, yeah, so I, um, basically, yeah, I'll, I'll read this, okay. So, a recent replication by Freed, Mukamel, and Kreiman, 2011, validated 
Libet's results, while another suggests that unconscious activity can precede conscious awareness of decisions by as much as 10 seconds. And this is a study published by Soon, Brass, Hines, Hayes, etc., etc., 2008. So basically, they, these experimenters found that like this readiness potential, this this absolutely certain, absolute certainly certainty that an action was going to happen, happened like as, as, as much as 10 seconds before, before the person was um, aware of that decision. Now, clearly, unequivocally, very, very strongly, this experiment demonstrates how, how completely impossible free will is. Okay, so like, in other words, what I'm trying to say is like, by 1983 and now, like by 2008, where we had so much stronger, more conclusive evidence of this, neuroscientists, scientists, physical scientists, the scientific community was beginning to really understand that as much as we might like to have a free will, no, it's physiologically completely impossible. Okay, so like what happens is you have some researchers, some philosophers, some psychologists who have devoted decades trying to defend free will. You know, they, they just like, like, curiously, they don't understand how, they don't understand causality. They don't understand this simple process of cause and effect and how that makes free will completely impossible. But anyway, they, um, they began to see the, the, um, the something on the wall. <laughs> they began to see the light. They began to see the light. They began to realize that like, you know, it was futile to continue defending this concept of free will because, like, the, the evidence against it was so preponderous, so powerful. So their next tack, their next, next strategy was, was, well, we can't, you know, we can't free, win the free will debate because, like, because we're so wrong, because it's, like, so, you know, free will is so undefensible. So then they, they began to design... Oh, no, right. What happened to... Um, some of these researchers, you know, quite, you know, I guess sincerely, they believed that, like, if we do away with this notion of free will, if people understand that nobody has a free will, society is going to collapse, that, like, nobody's going to do anything, you know, according, you know, another, everybody's going to break the rules and, and, like, and everybody's going to say, well, you can't blame me because I don't have a free will. It's a very naive, simplistic kind of, like, understanding or evaluation of human nature and of society, all right, of civilization. But that that's their fear. So like so what they what they did, knowing that they couldn't any longer defend free will, they tried to construct experiments that would demonstrate that even though we don't really have a free will, it's in our interest to believe we do, because when we believe we don't have a free will, that's going to lead to negative behavior, right? So, like, on page 17, I begin with a, a study by Voos and Schooler, which they published in 2008. Let me find the exact title. Hold on. Uh, we've got about eight minutes. Um, Okay, it's, it's called The Value of Believing in Free Will, colon, Encouraging a Belief in Determinism Increases Cheating. Okay, it was published in Psychological Science. And you got to wonder, like, with these, like, peer-reviewed uh, scientific journals. I mean, even, like, Nature, you know, some time ago, I think in 2012, published this, like, complete, completely absurd defense of free will. And, you know, I mean, like, that, that's how... 
Well, that's that's how that's the limit. I mean, who knows? Maybe that's why we're like in such trouble with climate change. I mean, a lot of these top scientists, you know, they know they know how to learn. They know how to remember what they've learned. They know how to like teach what they've learned. They know how to use what they've learned. But they're clueless in terms of understanding what they've learned. Right. So like that's an example of, you know. All right, whatever. So anyway, these Vusen schooler, they're concerned. Yes, people, you know, abandon their belief in free will. They're going to like act immorally and, and all this stuff. Okay, so what they did is like they primed subjects to either believe in free will or disbelieve in free will. We're, we're at um, the top of page 20. And so in, in their first experiment, they divided their subjects in half. And they read a passage from uh, Francis Crick, famous um, scientist's book, The Astonishing Hypothesis. Okay, so like one part of the group read... Um, this was like the determinism, the no free will half of the group said, you, your joys and your sorrows, your memories and your ambitions, your sense of personal identity and free will are in fact no more than the behavior of a vast assembly of nerve cells and their associated molecules. Okay, this is Francis Crick. He's, I think, a Nobel Prize scientist, I don't think, in 1994. So Vusen Schooler had half of the subjects read that statement to prime a belief in no free will, okay? And then the other, and the other thing they, let, they had them read was like, and you're nothing but a pack of neurons, okay? So like, you know, strong, like, deterministic, no free will language. Okay, the other half read a passage that wasn't related to free will, okay? It didn't say they had a free will or not, whatever. So what they found is... After 20 trials, they had them do some kind of like a math, some kind of a, you know, exercise in the lab, and they gave them the opportunity to cheat. Um, so what happened is like the, the, the group that they primed to believe that they didn't have a free will with Crick's statement, apparently out of 20 trials, they cheated 12 times on average, and the group that didn't have any priming at all, you'd think maybe they wouldn't cheat at all, but they cheated nine times. So it's not that much of a difference, all right? But they were claiming, oh, my God, you know, like, if you disbelieve in free will, you're going to, like, cheat more. Okay. The problem, they have, there are various problems with this study. And so, like, we're on page 20. Okay. The first thing is that um, the, the researchers, you know, tested their statements to make sure they wouldn't affect the subject's um, well-being, their emotional state in terms of how well they felt, right? But they didn't test to, to measure how the statement of like, you know, your sense of personal identity and free will are no more than the behavior of the vast assembly of nerve cells and their associated molecules and you're nothing but a pack of neurons. They didn't test how having priming subjects with that, that those statements would not, you know, influence their affect, but influence their self-identity. They're, you know, basically they were robbing, you know, in a certain sense, these subjects of their humanity. Okay, so like, in other words, like, if they would have explained to, to those subjects um, that they don't have a free will, in a way that didn't reduce them to molecules and stuff like that, you know, that probably would have minimized the, the fion disparity, the 12 and the 9. Okay. Um... All right, but, but there's a stronger criticism here. Um, when, you, when you understand that nobody has a free will, you also have to understand that doesn't give you license 
to do what you want. So in other words, like, if, if these researchers would have primed the subjects, well, you know, like, you don't have a free will, but, you know, this knowledge, you know, even though, you know, you have this knowledge, society and morality and reason dictates that you shouldn't use it to act immorally, if they were also primed in that way, I would guess that would also have minimized the, that disparity between the two groups. So and I, I have a phrase that, um, that I use here, like on bottom of page 20. So I contend, what is it? Um, omitting this precept, this precept that like, you know, basically we don't have license. Our, our understanding we don't have a free will doesn't give us license to do what we want. So omitting this precept, I contend, is like teaching drivers to push a gas pedal and turn a steering wheel, but neglecting to teach them to apply the brakes. I mean, it's completely irresponsible. You know, you're only teaching them one half of, very, of a very useful you know, truthful, reality-based, um, you know, concept, perspective. Okay, uh, we've got two and a half minutes. Well, I'm not sure if we can get into this um, in that, that amount of time. No. All right, so, like, I'm going to get into why this is so important, because we'll, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll start off on page 21 next next episode. Um, so why is this important? I mean, like, the world's completely deluded about who we are as human beings. You know, so many people think that they have a free will when we don't. And actually, I'm going to do an episode soon on, like, for example, the Greeks were probably the most philosophical group of people in history, okay? Now, the Greeks had terms, Greek words for fate and destiny, okay? They had the fates, remember the four fates and all that? They had terms for that concept. They had absolutely no term for free will. The free will construct wasn't actually um, coined until 380 AD, where St. Augustine, you know, is trying to grapple the question of like, um, you know, well, if God is all good, then you can't blame God for, um, for the evil in the world. So, so he said, well, well you got to blame humans. And the only way you could blame humans is by giving them this free will away from God, okay? Now, he could have blamed Satan. You know, um, Augustine could have said, well, fine, God is all good, but Satan is evil, so, like, we'll blame him for the evil. But no, he decided to blame us humans, and that's where this whole nonsensical, really harmful, you know, situation about free will arose. And it, it's harmful because, like, you know, I've ex- explained in so many shows, I mean, it, it just, like, keeps us at each other. We blame each other. If we didn't have this free will belief, we'd be so much kinder to ourselves, to others. You know, we wouldn't become arrogant when we did things that are really good. We wouldn't feel so envious of people who, who had abilities that we didn't have. I mean, it'd be, it'd be so much of a better world. But beyond that, you know, like, to, for the world in 2014 to still believe that we have a free will, I mean, it's a delusion. It, it, it's a delusion that, that like, you know, if we, if we want to see who we are, and, and granted, it, it's, it's, a very, it's a very surreal kind of a revelation. You know, like, we have this kind of, like, feeling in a sense that things are up to us, but absolutely nothing is up to us. And to, to my mind, that makes reality much, much more wonderful because that, that makes us explore, well, you know, what's the character, what's the nature of whatever is causing the world to, to be as it is? All right, well, that's all we have time for. So, like, next episode, we're going to get more into these, these, these um, experiments by Vusen Schooler attempting to suggest that um, free will belief is better than not. All right, see you next time.